It's the 15th of January, 2016, and this is episode 321 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This and all episodes of Let's Talk Bitcoin are offered as entertainment only. Please do your own research and thinking before putting money on the line with cryptocurrency or anything else. We'll be talking about the price during this episode, but we're not giving you any advice. We're just talking. <laughs> on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Happy 2017, guys. Happy 2017, Adam. Have you been riding the Bitcoin roller coaster? Uh, well, I think it's sort of hard not to in, in all of this. I like to think that I tend to be a little bit above it to the point where we don't talk about the price too much, but it's sort of hard to avoid right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> anytime there's a, a lot of price change, it, it also generates a lot of attention for Bitcoin and people hear about it who hadn't heard about it before. Yeah, absolutely. There's the price attention that it generates. And then also there's the attention that's generated by, you know, nearing all time highs. And all of this isn't happening as a vacuum, as we often say, you know, you've got like India and Venezuela demonetizing in various capacities. You've got China struggling with capital controls and flight. Uh, you got uh, Argentina, you know, in like the, the sort of not so great stages of hyperinflation. And there are other examples around the world right now that are sort of, um, uh, examples of disorder in the system. And there's always been this sort of like narrative about how, you know, it goes back to the days of uh, the Cyprus bank freeze, right? Where there was a big surge in Bitcoin price around that. And so everyone sort of just in interpreted naturally that this was, you know, this was a, an exit from the Cypriot people uh, into something that would allow them to, to kind of save themselves. But in practice, what we saw was that actually it wasn't that it was sort of the opposite. It was everybody else saw what was happening there. And while, and, you know, kind of took the, took that as an impetus that uh, Bitcoin has something that, you know, is valuable with it in terms of its autonomy from kind of government structures and the ability to do these haircuts and things like that. So that's kind of what I always come back to is, is uh, given the, the dynamics that we're looking at here, I'm real curious for your thoughts. Um, are we seeing this as a utility thing or are we still in this, you know, hardcore speculation place where these events might, you know, make a difference in the long term? But in the short term, really, this is just people seeing that these events of disorder that then spurs people who aren't in those situations to actually buy more of the currency. So, I mean, or, or do you think that we're actually finally seeing penetration into these spaces? Speculation. Hardcore speculation. I mean, uh, if you look at the statistics, more than 95% of the volume is being generated uh, from China. And while they have had almost 7% devaluation of the yuan in the last year, and that has triggered waves and waves and waves of um, investments into Bitcoin. I think the main reason is not Bitcoin's utility, not even Bitcoin's use as um, an exit strategy or a vehicle for uh, capital flight from uh, China, because the, the currency controls are not that strong yet. And there are plenty of other ways to get um, hard currency out of, out of China. But I think the main thing, the main news is that China's economy is slowing down. And for Chinese investors, there is a desperate search for yield. And it's very difficult to find investments that can deliver yield that are not already correlated with the investments they have. 
Um, and I think that's where Bitcoin fits the, the bill. It's, it's an investment that is not correlated that offers yield at a time when their other investments are not delivering any yield. And it only takes a tiny fraction of investments to flow into Bitcoin for it to move hard in either direction. I almost think it's kind of a false dichotomy to say it's either speculation or it's because or people are buying it because it's useful to them in a unstable political situation or something. I think it could be both. And people, you know, we like to say like money can be a form of speech or like free speech or financial transactions are a form of speech. And we shouldn't put words in people's mouths, maybe. I mean, I know it's tempting to to think about why people are buying Bitcoin, but you know, perhaps Perhaps the reason that so many Chinese people are buying Bitcoin right now and investors is because they are concerned about greater capital controls down the road and they see it coming. They see a, a you know, global instability. Um, and, you know, perhaps they're hoping to they're they're hoping to make money on on the investment as sort of a form of speculation. But they're also concerned about the that it might be a matter of necessity pretty soon to have Bitcoin. So let me rephrase the question then a little bit, um, because I appreciate both of your answers, but I was uh, stepping a little to the side of that. I guess the question is that this isn't the first time that we've been here, like the, the you know, in terms of the price, the market cap is now far higher, of course, because there are a lot more tokens in circulation. But in terms of the price, we've been pretty much butting up against, uh, you know, the all time highs. And we might have actually broken it kind of depending on where you keep track, whether it's Mount Gox or, uh, you know, Bitstamp um, for the all time highs during the last time. But my point is, is that um, we've been here before. And when we were here before, it became obvious later that the price had way, way outrun the utility of the thing and that everybody was excited about it, but that there wasn't really kind of that underlying utility or value to back it up. And so the price, you know, went way back down. And so now, again, like we find ourselves at this same basic place of all time highs. And that's the question is, has that changed? Have we now shifted towards more of uh, this and you know, is that enough to maintain these prices? Is this a fair price for Bitcoin now, or is this just again the the you know essentially a short squeeze pushing up the price because people are concerned you know about these other things? I put more stock in the price now than before, simply because we're getting price information from more different places than we were before. Before it was basically driven by Mt. Gox, which in the aftermath we realized, you know, was <laughs> there was some shenanigans going on there. It was heavily manipulated. And so it's harder to trust that as the quote real price. I mean, the real price is whatever people are willing to pay for it, of course, but the more different places you can gather that information from, the more trustworthy I think it comes. And yet um, most of the price information is coming from a single market. So that kind of puts us back in the same place. I think um, one of the difficulties here is that the words this time it's different are famous last words in investment circles, right? Um, but in many ways, uh, a lot of things are different this time around. The depth of the market, the, the volume, the liquidity that exists, um, all of those things are different. I don't know if the utility is there yet. Um, and I think if you look at you know, the Bitcoin price, especially if you look at it on a log chart, there is a clear um, trend from the complete picture of the eight years. And the price is mostly now just reverting to that mean from from a long sideways move in, in 2014 and 15. So 
Um, you know, may, maybe, maybe there's more depth and maybe there's more foundation. I wouldn't say there's, I would be much more comfortable saying that if we were hovering around the 750 to 800 price range, then, you know, given the mad rush up we've seen over the past, um, let's say two weeks, I think the, the pace of development of Bitcoin was more in line with the number of transactions and the volumes um, before that. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm willing to take the volatility. It's less volatility than we had last time around. The volatility continues to go down, even with these extreme moves we've seen in the last two weeks. And so as long as people are aware that Bitcoin is, is prone to uh, bubble behavior, and it will overreact on positive signals, and then it will overreact on negative signals on the other side. Um, and just take a long-term perspective. You know, my favorite, um, my favorite little meme for this particular occasion is the video of uh, Ron Atkinson as Mr. Bean on a roller coaster with a completely deadpan expression as he's being tossed around. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the seasoned Bitcoin investor who's been through two or three um, bubbles, has seen you know 20% per day moves and is now completely unfazed by it. So I'm curious, uh, you know, I get a lot of questions at this time of year, right? Once we get to the part where Bitcoin is going nuts and doing this whole thing that it's doing right now. And this happened when, you know, when we would hit 700 and earlier kind of price bumps, but it's obviously happening a lot more now at these prices. Um, is this a good price to sell at? I mean, like if somebody has been holding Bitcoin from $500, it seems like it's pretty reasonable to sell some and to just, you know, like lock in some profit or, you know, reduce your cost basis effectively by uh, by selling some at these prices. But I mean, do you think that that's the way to approach this as a conservative, just like normal person in Bitcoin who doesn't want to do day trading? Or do you think that it's still better just to leave them there and just not touch them ever? Disclaimer, we're giving investment advice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't really answer that question because it depends entirely on what this um, capital represents for the people who've invested at what price they got involved how much of their portfolio it is, what their risk appetite is, what their age is, and so many other things that really have are entirely personal questions. I will say that the, the adage, don't invest more than you're willing to lose, which you hear a lot, and I've certainly repeated myself, um, applies in terms of uh, profit-taking too, which means that if you, if you bought um, Bitcoin at a $500 price and you're now looking at that investment having doubled, then your risk appetite may have changed. You know, you may have felt okay losing the capital you had at 500, but now that it's worth more, you may not feel okay about that. And so for many people, I think it's not an unreasonable idea to say, well, you know, um, take out those those profits, keep the same amount invested in, in Bitcoin, uh, but, but you know, on a different cost basis, and and take some of those profits back. That that's a perfectly reasonable strategy. You can apply it in that in that way. Um, generally, people are much more risk averse when it comes to losses <laughs> than it comes to gains. Right? People uh, feel losses much more strongly than they feel gains. So. Um, but it, it really depends on what you're using Bitcoin to do. 
And um, I, I don't trade Bitcoin on a regular basis. And I, I look at it as, as part of my um, income instead. So it's, I have a different perspective. My comment was going to be pretty much what Andrea said. It's, it's up to you. You have to decide when is the right time for you to sell, buy, hold, whatever. And it's, yeah, we can't make a blanket statement about it. Well, there's no such thing as a blanket statement. I agree with that. Okay, so then I'll just, fine. I'll just tell you what I say. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what I do think you say? I think it's safe. Um, you know, I mean, the thing that I really feel like I've learned over the last couple of years is that like we just don't know what the price is going to do. So I agree with you that this is highly individual on a person to person basis. But the test, the important test to me seems to be when are you going to need access to the funds? Because if you're going to need access to the funds, you know, in the near term, then it's better to take opportunities like this to try and kind of level out your cost basis. Um, but on the other hand, if, you know, you just have some money and you just you're fine with it sitting there for five years and you don't care about it, then you can kind of overlook all of the bumps in the road. Because so long as the, uh, you know, the end thesis that Bitcoin will be more valuable later than it is now because it's more useful and used by more people, then you'll be right with that. But again, like if you have need, you know, if you've got Bitcoin, uh, funds in Bitcoin that you're going to need in six months, then it's hard to recommend against, you know, taking advantage of some of these all time high prices because they might not last. And the last time we were here, it took, what, two and a half years to get back. So, you know, <laughs> a bird in the hands, two in the bush. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I was just thinking it took three years to get back pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It took a long time. It took a lot longer than I thought. I was like, you know, I was like, oh, this is the new normal. You know, like it's not necessarily going to stay here, but this will be the higher end of the range. And in practice, that was not at all what happened. And in practice, the range narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed for a really long time and then hung out there and then had to find like another kind of breakout moment to get back up to where it's gone over the last you know couple of months. Yeah. I uh, want to bring back up something that was being discussed a lot last time there was the all-time high. I mean, mm -hmm. I, get, I guess pretty much everybody sort of saw that, well, maybe not everybody, but <laughs> I think there was definitely a lot of caution at that time that, oh yeah, this is probably a bubble. There really isn't like the infrastructure support yet for Bitcoin to be really this valuable to where one Bitcoin is worth this much in fiat currencies. But do you guys remember like... Three years ago, people were there were a lot of people who were saying, yeah, in three to five years from now, all the investment that's been happening in Bitcoin companies and the, the Bitcoin ecosystem is going to come is going to start coming to fruition. All these trees that were planted now are going to bear fruit and the infrastructure is really going to leap forward three to five years from now. And now it's three years later. Do you what do you think about the state of Bitcoin companies or infrastructure now is it e basically is it easier to use bitcoin and as such are more people able to use bitcoin that weren't before because of the investment that's gone on in bitcoin projects and companies absolutely i mean i think that's the real story here and to me whenever there's a lot of uh, chatter about the price and a lot of distraction um, from drama in the community I, I go back to the the fundamentals of Bitcoin are technology. And, you know, if you look at what's happened in technology in this space, the last time we were here, there was no wallet for um, the iPhone because Apple did not allow um, wallets on oh, the yeah. iOS platform, right? <laughs> the, the only yeah. one was a company that had set up where you became a member of the co-op so they could distribute 
um, apps to you. I don't know if you remember FIFA. Yes, um, I do. Yeah. Right. Right. There or blockchain.info on the browser. Right. Right. There were maybe two or three wallets for Androids, not very good, very basic wallets. And there were two exchanges. Fast forward, we've got um, probably uh, more than 200 exchanges. You can find exchanges in every country, including countries where Bitcoin is theoretically banned or goes through periods where it's banned for a short time and gets exchanges operating. You have ATMs by the hundreds of them all around the world, um, perhaps thousands, I, I, I can't even tell. There are dozens of wallets for every platform imaginable. You know, you can you can get a not just a wallet, but a, a decent HD hierarchical deterministic BIP thirty nine mnemonic word seeded nice wallet that is compatible with other wallets, easy to back up, easy to use, with a decent user interface on anything, even BlackBerry um, <laughs> and Windows phones. It's it's harder to find a Windows phone than it than it is to find a wallet for Windows Phone. Um, and, you know, so that's all changed. And, um, you know, we're seeing a lot more development in terms of the, um, the capabilities within Bitcoin itself. Uh, at that time, we had barely, barely basic multi-sig. Uh, P2SH, which is the scripting um, type technology, was restricted only to standard transaction types, which were multi-sig and uh, public key. And you couldn't do any other types of scripts. Now we have inactive development and almost completed lightning networks, so smart contracts with very complex scripts using not just multi-sig, but time-based locks. Uh, that didn't even exist at the time. Uh, you know, the basic HD wallet capability is now everywhere. Almost every wallet can be backed up um, with mnemonic seeds and has um, single use addresses from a very large pool of addresses. And, and all of this makes it a lot easier for regular people to use it. Yeah, I mean, we've gone a long way. There's a lot more depth to the infrastructure and there's a lot more depth to the liquidity of the, of the currency itself. I agree with that. And I think there's probably also a, a lot of room left for growth and there's a long way to go. But yeah, we have come really far since three years ago. So that's why I say like, I don't think, I feel like I put more stock in this price as being legit or real than I did three years ago. Yeah, we're certainly in a different place now than we were then. I'll agree with you on that. One of the other things that strikes me as being really different now compared to three years ago is that Bitcoin itself was what companies had to deal with at that time when they were building something. And now that's generally not the case. Now, like you have to be intentionally trying to be an infrastructure company in order to like deal with all the Bitcoin stuff, um, you know, yourself and most of the kind of just like I want to be an app that uses all of this stuff are using APIs and from various companies. And there are just a ton of companies out there that are basically doing anything you can imagine, you know, from KYC to, you know, to blockchain provision um, as a simplified API that doesn't actually require um, the people who are developing these new applications or products to really understand or know how the Bitcoin system works, but to still use it just like a normal kind of web development tool. So that that's real different. And it's just kind of getting started. That was like last year was the year where a lot of these companies were really getting their legs. And it's feeling like this year is going to be 
you know, we're going to see a lot more applications because there are these kind of, uh, I don't know, easy launch platforms. I don't know what you want to call it. It makes it makes it a lot less complex to develop something like this. I agree with that. But also, I want to bring up that one argument I've heard a lot lately is that the a lot of Bitcoin infrastructure is being held back because of the current scaling problem and the increase in transaction fees and the times and stuff. And I think that is kind of true to an extent because, I mean, I, I just know of a lot of companies personally who are like, yeah, we were trying to develop this product, but it's kind of difficult because the fees keep going up and it depended on small payments and there's not really like a functional lightning network or solution that's going to work for us right now. Um, actually, I'm thinking of one in particular, which was a, a company that lets you that would let you make a micropayment to watch a video. And there's a few of them like that, but they just basically suspended operations and said, we're, we're waiting for the scaling debate to resolve first before we go forward with this. And same with like, I know, Adam, you've encountered problems with this with Tokenly with the counterparty network where, you know, you're relying on Bitcoin transaction fees with that to a certain extent, too. So, yeah, it's just expensive. I mean, that's really yeah. what it is. Is It's like, I, you know, I'm a fan of the price going up if it's a reflection of reality, but it wouldn't bother me if it was down at seven hundred dollars, like you were saying, Andreas, because that's I mean, like even that is still, you know, 30 to 40 cents for a transaction fee in the current environment. And that's not like a prioritized one. That's like a one that's not going to take 24 to 48 hours to get into the blockchain. So like that's the. Like I, I'm that's the only thing that makes me kind of reticent about the price. And then the other thing that strikes me that hasn't changed at all since the last time and maybe has even gotten worse since the last time um, we were at this price. Security. I think security has improved a lot. I think that uh, we can I talk do about too. this. I do, too. I yeah, was we'll just t- thinking of the new the, the last show you did about a t- about the phone number attack and stuff. But yeah, yeah, no, totally. Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But um, the thing I think that hasn't changed is the difficulty of transversing between dollars or a fiat currency uh, and uh, cryptocurrency. That still is just about as hard now as it was then. And in some ways, it's more onerous because the uh, facilities that you can use, like Coinbase, take higher fees. They take, uh, you know, they require more authentication now than they do then. And now they're sending all your info to the government. Too. Right, exactly, we thought exactly. they were so, before, but they definitely are now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's going to get harder. It's only going to get harder. Um, and I think that's a realization that, uh, that is going to gradually dawn on people, which is that the only part in which uh, governments can effectively regulate Bitcoin is at the exchanges, is at the on-ramps and off-ramps. That's the part that they can um, regulates. That's the part that looks like a nail and they're holding a hammer and they're going to hammer that nail as hard as they can, especially if um, it starts becoming a problem. Um, and the more you have currency crises, the more you have manipulated currencies, the more you have currency controls, the more you have inflation, the more you have recessions, the more of a problem Bitcoin is going to be for these um, for these governments. And they're going to relentlessly hammer at the one thing that they can control, which is the exchanges. Eventually, that's going to push more and more people to, um, to instead of buying Bitcoin with exchange from fiat, to earning it and start selling labor uh, services, products directly in Bitcoin and creating more of a closed economy. It's going to force people to move in that direction. We're already seeing that in places where the currency crisis is extreme. People are, are not just turning to Bitcoin as a safe haven investment. Um, in, in a very difficult way, they're also just using it 
um, in a closed ecosystem. If you cut off all the on-ramps and off-ramps, people are going to enter Bitcoin and then they're going to stay there because it will be difficult to get in and out. So they'll just, um, you know, uh, earn and spend as much as possible within Bitcoin, which will backfire on, on, on the very regulation that is causing that. But I, I think you're right, Adam. It's harder and it's going to get it's going to get much, much harder over time. Yeah. As you said that, Andres, I realize I, that's basically been my behavior is like just trying to not convert between, uh, fiats and Bitcoin. It is getting harder. So, I mean, that was the prognosis that we had again, I think about three years ago, we were talking about this, um, you know, was that like the kind of logical conclusion of all of this, uh, if that friction remains in place is that people got to pick a side eventually. And if this goes on long enough and Bitcoin looks as attractive as it does and continues to have the right fundamentals and dynamics and performance and things like that, and fiat currencies as kind of the alternative don't, then that does, in fact, drive people. You know, like the the whole thing about Bitcoin and the whole thing about cryptocurrency in general is that it offers competition in areas where competition has never been allowed. And so it seems like we are very much there, right, by by restricting um, those flows between, they do force people to pick. And that might be a hard choice now, but it's getting easier kind of every month, every year that goes by as the current system continues to suffer while the new system continues to apparently succeed. So, I mean, there are definitely, you know, hurdles ahead for Bitcoin. But if you look at just trajectory, then it's pretty straightforward which one, you know, is the one to bet on. By pushing to make it harder and harder to get in and out of, of Bitcoin, they're not going to stop people from getting into Bitcoin. They're going to stop people from getting out of Bitcoin and they're going to push more and more people into Bitcoin. I think that's really what we're going to see. And I think in, in the end, you know, the thing that most people were worried about was that, oh, governments are going to ban Bitcoin or they're going to make it difficult to trade in Bitcoin and they're going to introduce currency controls. Turns out that that's going to be one of the biggest drivers for Bitcoin adoption. So another thing that's uh, different now relative to then is uh, you remember all the life on Bitcoin stuff? Like there was actually a there was a oh, documentary called Life on yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, I remember. Uh, that. You know, after that bubble where you know they were very excited and they you know it was in Utah. These guys were very interesting, and there were a couple of other projects like that. Um, Cashmere Hill did uh, did her thing with Forbes, um, and just like. People, you know, like, oh, this is, you know, worth a lot of money. People are excited about it. Let's see if I can live on it now. And it was really hard because nobody accepted it. And I still don't think we've really changed the fact that not many people accept it. But I think that there are better bridge solutions that make it so that someone doesn't have to accept it for you to still be able to spend your Bitcoin with them, because now there are services that provide kind of that intermediary layer. So, I mean, if somebody, you know, is do you do you think we'll see more of these kind of life on Bitcoin? I'm going to do everything on Bitcoin, you know, because the price is high again. Or was that just kind of like a one time first thing? Yeah, I think it's I think it's like been there, done that. I think it's kind of played out. I think like part of the reason people were doing life on Bitcoin things was to spread and promote the idea of Bitcoin. And at this point, it's like most people have heard of Bitcoin. They're just maybe not ready to start accepting it yet when you're talking about merchants. And yeah, there are these bridge solutions like, you know, being able to buy gift cards with Bitcoin or or being able to purchase travel from like travel booking websites with Bitcoin. Well, there are even credit cards now, like where you load them up with Bitcoin and then it's a real credit card and they actually draw it down just kind of dynamically as you spend it. So, I mean, like 
it doesn't, you know, like the gift cards, I agree with you. That's like a sort of ugly solution, but just having a credit card that just hooks up to a Bitcoin account in the background, that seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. Until you get to the 600 page capital gains report, you have to do at the end of the year. I mean, that, that's a deliberate attempt to make it harder to use Bitcoin as a currency. And we're going to see that in more countries, including countries that apply VAT to Bitcoin. So when they treat Bitcoin as a commodity, they're actively um, discouraging its use as a currency. Yeah, it's kind of brilliant in a way. I mean, in like an evil way. <laughs> yeah, like when you were saying, Andreas, like people were afraid that the government is going to make it harder to transact in Bitcoin. It, it seems to me like already have, you know, and people are some people are still using it despite that. But um, I don't know. I think the people who are willing to sort of be risk takers and use it anyway, even though it's harder, have already been like selected for. Yeah, it's going to be good. Maybe it'll be harder to get get more new people on who are willing to deal with that hassle. No, it's not going to be hard at all, because um, when whenever you look at how difficult is it to use Bitcoin, the, the answer is difficult compared to what? And, and the simple answer to that is it's difficult compared to using your own national currency. So as long as they keep fucking with national currencies and destroying them, they're going to keep pushing users into Bitcoin. So, I mean, if your currency is stable and they make it harder to use Bitcoin, then, then you have no reason to do it. But if it's hard to use Bitcoin, but it's life-threatening to use the national currency because you are not able to get food, um, then you use Bitcoin. As people in Venezuela, a very few, very small percentage are using Bitcoin in Venezuela to buy food from Amazon Prime um, and smuggle it yeah, across the border. Uh, you know, I mean, that's an extreme situation. But um, the other example being demonetization in India. Um, so. It's not just they make it harder for you to use Bitcoin, but then they go and destroy their own currencies and make it 10 times harder to use the own car their own currency, which pushes more people um, into Bitcoin. So I think of it really as uh, kind of energy levels um, it, and, and money will always flow from the from the high friction um, system to the low friction system, from the high difficulty, high cost system to the low cost system, it will always flow downhill. So yes, if 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 Bitcoin's difficulty is is raised, that makes it hard. But if you know using the rupee is even ten times harder than it was a year ago, then money flows into Bitcoin again. So I don't want to talk about politics, but it seems like it's hard to avoid talking about the fact that, uh, you know, Trump is an unconventional person who's probably going to be president and the government that he's going to lead as far as recent U.S. history is concerned is probably going to be unusual. Do we think, you know, I'm curious if anybody has opinions or projections for whether or not this is a net positive or a net negative, because on the one hand, he, you know, definitely seems like a disruptive candidate, you know, dis a, a disruptive uh, force in the mix uh, that isn't necessarily kind of baked in and Bitcoin seems to benefit from disruption. But at the same time, disruption can also mean things that we don't know about or understand yet. So I don't know. I feel like it's <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of a wild card, though. So on the one hand, you know, I think there's a, a very strong possibility that if if Bitcoin rubs Trump the wrong way, 
Um, and he grabs onto the idea that Bitcoin is something that is evil and should be stopped. Um, he, he's prone to taking simplistic ideas and turning them into action um, without much thought, it seems to me. And that's my personal assessment. Take it as you as you like. But if he if he takes that idea, um, then he would use executive power to throw a big old monkey wrench into Bitcoin, make it very, very difficult for people to operate with Bitcoin in the US uh, and cause a lot of pain. Um, but at the same time, this uncertainty means that he's equally likely to trash the dollar, uh, tank the, the US economy, uh, cause international trade crises, currency crises, currency wars, etc., all of which feed into um, flights to a safe haven globally. And, and Bitcoin has proven that it is a viable candidate for that kind of uh, protection. And so, you know, it's, it, it could go either way. I don't think it, it, it really makes much difference. I don't think Trump knows if he's pro-Bitcoin or anti-Bitcoin because Trump doesn't have any ideology whatsoever or principles from which you can derive conclusions. Um, if one day he wakes up and thinks it's not in his own personal interest, he'll, he'll stomp on it without any consideration for law, precedent, process, uh, or principles. And, and if it goes the other way, it will go the other way. You can complete wild card is what we have. So it doesn't really bear speculation. I haven't heard any kind of prognostic indicators either. Like I haven't heard anybody from the Trump administration say what they think about Bitcoin or anything about Bitcoin, really. They've been more focused on other things. Yeah, they don't they don't have to talk about it. Like that's like it's great if they continue to not talk about it. It'd be great if we got clarity. I mean, like there's a whole bunch of ways that this could actually improve the situation without necessarily being a negative. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by an unannounced token-powered online collectible card game that I've been having built since August of last year. As we get closer to the reveal, I'm looking for people who are interested in getting involved with the project in a whole variety of ways. If you're interested, please contact me at adam at letstalkbitcoin.com as soon as possible. So, after two weeks and several hours of recorded calls, I've decided it's best for everyone involved not to run really anything. What you're missing in these recordings is a very sad, drawn-out situation where the attacker tries, unsuccessfully, to extort money from the victim, first with threats of releasing private information, impersonating the victim or his relatives and making large purchases, which would be fraudulent and reversed, but could cause a huge inconvenience, and finally arguments about the value of getting back social media accounts relative to the cost of having the attacker say embarrassing things on those social media accounts as the person being attacked. In the end, it would seem, the attacker got nothing from this particular victim, because they stood resolutely and were willing to accept what potential embarrassment might come. It's also important to note that because this victim didn't have any exchange accounts or cryptocurrency accounts associated with her email address or other username and password type identities, the attacker had to do this conversation with them and attempt to extort some money via blackmail. Many victims are not so lucky, and in those situations, the funds are just gone. So, as we wrap this segment, let's rejoin the other hosts of LTB to discuss the issue in a little bit more context. Andreas, can you remind us of the underlying issue here? A lot of people are using SMS messages as two-factor authentication. So let's de- 
dig a, deep, a bit deeper on that one. What, what is two-factor authentication? Uh, authentication factors are um, come in three kinds. Something you own, something you are, or something you know. Something you know will be a password or passphrase. That's the most common form of uh, that type of authentication. Something you are might be a biometric, a fingerprint, an iris scan, a voice print, or something like that. And something you own um, is traditionally a token, a, a hardware token, a software token, or something like that. Now, when people are using SMS two-factor authentication, the SMS basically says the number is something I own. It's a something I own type of authentication. Well, turns out you don't own it. Verizon owns it. And Verizon owns it only until it decides to port it to T-Mobile for your hacker's phone. Um, and that's why this is a problem. It's because people are using a phone number as something they own when in fact they don't own the phone number. Um, this was demonstrated more than three years ago at DEF CON uh, in a series of uh, um, social engineering attacks where they, they demonstrated how every single phone carrier uh, has terrible process security in place. I, I love this video. It showed a woman who was um, um, doing this to, a, I believe it was a wired reporter. Um, and so she pulls up a YouTube video of a screaming baby in the background, calls up the, the journalist's um, cell phone provider and using just a bare minimum of information, they had their phone number and their name, um, pretending to be their wife, um, was constantly interrupted by the screaming baby in the background, which was YouTube. And um, by pleading and being you know, sounding absolutely pitiful and harangued and, and um, on the verge of madness because of the baby screaming and all of that, um, got the operator to feel pity for them and immediately ported the number, gave them full control over the entire account, changed the passwords, changed the pins, um, and then had access. At that point, anything you use SMS to secure can be switched over to the control of the hacker. It's been demonstrated many, many times, and none of the phone companies are fixing any of their process to stop this from happening. So actually, one of the conversations that I had was with a gentleman who actually had a recording of uh, the hacker that had gotten him specifically. And there might be multiple people doing this attack, but he seemed to be thinking that at least in his particular community, there was just one individual. Um, and one of the things that came up in that call was that uh, he actually couldn't do it with AT&T because AT&T has instituted a new policy that makes it so that if somebody calls up and then, uh, you know, to request access, uh, hangs up and then calls back again within like 48 hours, then uh, there's a flag put on the account that actually is kind of an overriding protection that makes it so that a CSR has to go through kind of the understanding and unlocking the account process, which for everybody else, they don't. <laughs> for everybody else, you call up, you know, you call up once, you get the person, you, you know, give them the spiel, they don't buy it, uh, you know, or they don't want to, you know, break protocol or whatever. And so you hang up, you just call back another person and you could just basically do that until you finally get someone. So that, that was interesting is that, you know, this seems to be almost entirely just a problem that phone companies have lousy <laughs> practices. 
And, uh, you know, and it seems like there are some potentially legal actions that are being uh, taken or considered against them as a result of this because of those practices. Well, hang on a second, because, again, I think the underlying problem is using a phone number as a factor of authentication that is something you own when you don't actually own it. So what you just described with AT&T is a great defense against an outsider trying to attack AT&T's customer service through social engineering. But what happens when someone inside AT&T decides to do that? You know, how many thousands of employees do they have with access to these systems who can do a number port, um, you know, or, or impersonate an employee and do a number port or hack someone's system, get access to this and do a number port? Um, again, you don't own the number and therefore uh, you can't rely on AT&T to protect you against insiders when they can't protect you against themselves. Uh, I, I think that's the underlying problem, which is this is not a good second factor. It's not a good primary factor. It's not a good second factor. And it's especially not good if it's used as a means to do account recovery, where you can compromise the entire account, change the passwords, etc., simply with a text search. So I agree with you on that. But again, this is something that clearly like this solution didn't emerge overnight. This is something that people have found quite useful. And so, I, you know, I've my, my perspective is basically the same as yours, I think, Andreas, which is just that, like, don't trust your phone. Don't use your phone in these capacities because it seems like there's just no way that you can actually know that you're protected because of all these different things. But, you know, I talk to people who are very concerned about mobile security, want second factor and are looking for ways to do this. So the two ways basically that I've heard, um, you know, uh, you know, where you can keep this sort of second factor without being exposed to this risk. Uh, one way is to have a second phone number uh, that nobody knows about. And so, again, that's that doesn't harden it against what you're saying, which is an insider threat. But you do need to know a phone number in order to port it. So if you have like a main phone number where you accept calls and then you have like a secret phone number that you only use for second factor, but it goes to your same device, then that has some protections. But again, it's security through obscurity. And then the other side of it is the Google voice approach where you actually um, have have a voice over IP number with Google, which can receive SMS messages. And the advantage there is that you can't uh, there. Uh, Google doesn't allow anybody to call up and try to social engineer them. So you're still vulnerable to Google doing it. But, you know, again, it seems like people are willing to take some of these centralization risks so long as they're reasonable. And really, it's the kind of clear and present threat that people care about. Um, I, I honestly, I, th I think I just read about someone having their Google voice number uh, compromised um, in our particular industry. And I think the, the other thing to realize here is that these security mechanisms are now being tested with the ultimate honeypot. And that is when uh, di digital accounts control money. Bitcoin is the litmus test. Bitcoin is the ultimate security test. It puts a honeypot at the end of the rainbow uh, and leads all the hackers to it. Um, and it's, it's evolving our understanding of security. It's evolving our uh, maturity of security. It's evolving people's operational security practices. And it's also evolving uh, hackers' responses and uh, attack vectors. So, you know, SMS two-factor authentication was fine when what you were protecting wasn't that valuable, but what is digital money um, or accounts that can lead you to compromise digital money, suddenly your entire digital life um, is now attached to this honeypot, then SMS is no longer a good enough thing. The other problem is that in many cases, when you put in a phone number 
in order to use it as a second factor. That phone number is automatically the recovery option, and you can't stop that. I would have no problem if SMS was just two-factor, which means you always need a password. That's still better than not having a second factor, having single factor only. But the problem is when you put the phone number in, it's not just two-factor. In most of these cases, it can also be used without the password to do primary recovery of the account. So I've removed phone numbers from all of my accounts. Um, and I don't have any phone numbers. You can't do recovery uh, through a phone number on, on any of the accounts that I, I use. In, in response to this particular attack vector, a much better solution for people is to use a properly backed up one-time password solution, um, either in software, uh, that would be Google Authenticator or Authy or one of these other um, services, preferably one that has the ability to back up, or better yet, uh, use a physical hardware token that implements universal two-factor U2F from the FIDO Alliance. Um, and that includes things like YubiKey or even now uh, a Bitcoin hardware wallet. Trezor and Ledger now have support for universal two-factor. So you can use your Bitcoin hardware wallet or YubiKey as a second-factor token device that is absolutely uh, something you own. Uh, and works extremely well for that. How can you do an audit on yourself and figure out if you have text message two-factor enabled on anything? Well, actually, Stephanie, it's great that you asked that, because for people who are really concerned about this, Kraken put together probably the most comprehensive post I've seen in terms of how to unscrew yourself when it comes to... I saw that. Yeah, that was yeah, good. Yeah, it's like a 41-step, very, very long, uh, you know, to do with lots of screenshots and, you know, everything's annotated and shows you exactly what to do with Google to kind of disconnect things. So that would be kind of the thing that I would suggest, and we'll link that in the show notes for this. There's a, one other thing you can do, which is you can go through the text messages on your device and look for text messages from providers that include some kind of code. Uh, in fact, searching for the word code is usually a good first step. Um, go through and remind yourself of all of the services where they deliver a code to you. Um, and next time you log into a service and they say, is this still your phone number? Can you please verify that this is still your phone number that we use for recovery of your account? Uh, that's a good reminder to go in and take that phone number out of the account uh, if you want to switch to a more secure two-factor mechanism. So just you know, scroll through your text messages, look for codes that you've received in the past. Those are all the services you need to change. So it's kind of interesting that we wound up here in terms of, I mean, like, Second factor makes a lot of sense. And a lot of the iterations that we've seen of it have made a lot of sense. And this is the first one where it really seems to be biting people. So, I mean, like, is this just a misstep or like, is there, are there dangerous directions that we just don't want to go down here? Or is it just that the people who are kind of generating the uh, second factor solutions and things like that aren't thinking about this for money? They're just thinking about it for like logging into Facebook, which has certainly security concerns, but nowhere near, you know, if you're storing thousands of dollars worth of money actually there. It's not actually second factor. I mean, that's the main problem, mostly the compromise you're talking about. They use SMS to do recovery of the account without another factor. So it's first factor. So we're back to using um, one factor only. And in this case, we're choosing the worst possible factor, which is a number you don't actually own. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. 
Content for today's show was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. Special thanks to everyone who I spoke to, or who provided additional perspective for this episode. This show features music from Jared Rubens and Mind to Matter. You can contact me at adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.